If you've been reading my blog, you've noticed that I've been doing a little bit of reading on the subject of evangelism. And in the course of one of those books, the author conveys a story uh, from a church that he was familiar with. And in this particular congregation, there was a bartender. And this bartender had come to faith in Christ. And initially, there was great rejoicing over the fact that this bartender had come to faith in Christ. But slowly, that changed. Because people expected him to leave his job as a bartender because of his faith in Christ. And so, after a period of time, you had people challenging him and criticizing him and grumbling uh, at him because of his chosen profession. What we see here are people grumbling against Jesus because of his calling and vocation. The big idea this morning is that Jesus restores sinners to himself by seeking them. Let's deal with the context first so that we understand exactly what's what's going on here that sets up this parable. Uh, Luke wants us to know. And what we see is that Jesus elicits strong responses from both legalists and the licentious, or if you want to use different terms, from both the religious and the non or irreligious. Jesus is eliciting strong responses from these two very different groups. And we see that clearly within the first two verses of this particular chapter. But let's not think that this is confined to the two verses of this chapter because it's really connected to everything that has come ahead of it. And so this is an ongoing problem that now is Jesus is going to directly address. It's clarified. I'm going to start with the religious people or perhaps the, the legalist people, the Pharisees and the scribes. We're familiar with those terms, and the scribes were, the, were in charge of interpreting the law for the people. And the Pharisees were not an official position. They were more of a group of people. And uh, they, their focus was largely on personal holiness. And so uh, they were very concerned that people were following the law, obeying the law, And uh, they held a high standard of moral conduct. And so what's happening is that they're watching, and what we see here is it starts off with the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. These are the licentious. These are the irreligious. The way this is translated indicates that At the very least, they're drawing near to Jesus. There's something attractive about Jesus, uh, and they want to hear Jesus. There's something about his message that interests them and engages them. And so at the very least, they're coming near. Another way we could translate this is that they were joined, those who were joining themselves to Jesus, which is a stronger sort of thing, not just that they're drawing near to listen, but they are trusting in Christ, and therefore are present to listen to Him. 
the, the way the verb is could go either in those two, of those two directions. And I tend to be thinking that they're, they're joining themselves to him. They're not just interested spectators. They're not just like, um, Ben Franklin who went to hear George Whitfield. He went to hear George Whitfield because Whitfield was engaging, not because he believed that which Whitfield proclaimed. These people are not there simply, I believe, because Jesus is engaging and interesting. They're there because they're entrusting themselves to Jesus. The tax collectors. These were Jews, but these were Jews that were working for Rome to collect the taxes that Rome required of the Jewish people. And so they were despised as traitors. But it wasn't just this idea of them working for the government. They were also sort of ruthless at times in how they collected those taxes. If you might imagine, they were sort of like Rocky Balboa. Rocky, you know, in the first movie, long, long ago, when he he made no money as a club fighter, he supplemented his income as being a collector for the local bookie. I almost wish Jackie was here because if you if you want if you forget anything or don't know anything about the Rocky legend, ask Jackie. She probably knows all the movies by heart. And uh, Rocky was a debt collector an unofficial illegal debt collector. And that's sort of how these guys could operate at times. They would be these debt collectors. And so they were despised people and seen as vile, by, particularly by the Pharisees and the scribes. But then you have this other designation that's made, the sinners. Quite possibly, this could refer to just the fact that they are notorious sinners, or in other words, they're known for their particular sins. Like, so Fred the adulterer, John the drunk, Willie the brawler. So it could simply, it could be as simple as that, that they're, these are people who are well known for their particular sins. But it also could have a technical Usage. We see in First Enoch, which of course is not in the Bible, but that is something that was familiar to the people who would have read this, uh, the, the people, the Pharisees and the scribes anyway. And in First in Enoch, this term is used for people who had a different view of Scripture, who had a different view of the feasts, who had a different view of purity. And so the, the sinners for the Pharisees would be those who didn't agree with them on religious matters. And so this could simply be people who weren't following, falling in line with the teaching and practices of the Pharisees. But we see that Jesus did in fact attract these people, which as I mentioned could refer to them joining together with him in faith. But they're joining, they're coming to listen as well. And what we see is that, that, that strong positive reaction that Jesus is eliciting from these sinful people. On the other hand, we see a strong negative reaction that Jesus is eliciting from the Pharisees and the scribes because it says they're grumbling. And the tense of the verb indicates that this is something that was persistent. It wasn't 
Oh, well, I can't believe he's doing that. But no, it was more like he's doing it again. I can't believe that Jesus. And so they're consistently grumbling and complaining against him in a malicious sort of fashion. Think, perhaps, of Numbers 14 and Korah and the way in which he repeatedly accused Moses. And what we see there is that not only was he accusing Moses, but he was accusing God. And God judged Korah. But we could see this in the sense of the story I started this sermon with. that the, the bartender was coming under criticism. There was grumbling against his particular practice. Grumbling. But we also see in this statement that they make, same verb form is used for their, for their, Jesus' receiving. This man receives or continues to receive or persistently receives sinners and eats with them. This this is pointing to Jesus' common practice. It wasn't as though he had one meal with these sinners, but it seems like at every meal Jesus has these unclean, filthy, corrupt people that are having bread with him, breaking bread with him. Jesus regularly received these sinners. And so this is, this leads Tim Chester to note that essentially when we look at uh, Luke's gospel, one of the means of ministry, of part of his ministry model seemed to be eating with people. There's a lot of meals that take place in the, the gospel of Luke. And so after we leave Luke 15, we're going to investigate the different meals and the teaching that Jesus gives at those meals uh, in the Gospel of Luke. But this is his ministry practice. This is his means of ministry. And lo and behold, it turns out that those people that were complaining against the bartender were complaining not about his vocation, but about his means or method of ministry. Because he said... It's interesting. People like to talk to their bartender. They'll tell me things they won't tell anybody else. And so he saw himself as uniquely positioned to interact with people about life. And so that was a man who actually was planning on going to seminary, not so he can be a pastor, but so that he can... Bring the gospel to bear upon these people that he met in the bar in the fulfillment of his responsibilities. Let's get back to meals for a minute. Not so much as a a method of ministry, but in the reality that in that culture, meals together were very significant. They affirmed the relationship. They indicated that there was acceptance of the person. And so it wasn't just that so-and-so happened to be at the meal. It was that they were at the meal with you and that they are accepted by you. And in many ways, this is a reflection of what we see in the Old Testament sacrificial law. After the atonement for sin is made, there is the peace offering, a fellowship meal. It was intended to be understood as you're, you're dining with God. 
And so just as Jesus was welcoming sinners into his presence, this is a reflection of the fact that God welcomes sinners into his presence. Which is important for us to know. The problem was that the Pharisees went out of their way to avoid sinful people. Instead of seeking the lost sheep of Israel, they avoided the lost sheep of Israel. And there are many Christians who do something similar based on passages like James 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We should keep ourselves unstained from the world. But we can't leave the world to do it. <laughs> okay? We're going to kind of explore that a little bit more in the, in the rest of this sermon, but they're kind of taking that principle as though somehow engaging with an unbeliever and a sinful person means that they will get contaminated by that person, as if, you know, you're talking to typhoid Mary, and uh, now you're going to be sick. That was sort of the understanding that they had, and so it, it called them to withdraw from the engagement with sinners. In fact, we see in, in uh, the Talmud, uh, in one of the explanations of Exodus 18.1, the wise man, it says, let not a man associate with sinners even to bring them near to the Torah. Don't even go seek sinners, essentially, is what the, the Talmud is trying to teach people on the basis of Exodus 18. This week I was engaging someone <clears throat> who uh, called me a heretic because... I'm Protestant, and I'm Reformed, so you're heretics too, okay? Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Praise God. And so my frustration boiled over a little bit, and I said, no, wait a minute. They had made a statement that they couldn't, you know, these matters that were being discussed were above them, and they wanted to just seek Jesus. I said, now wait a minute, you're calling me a heretic, and you won't even explain to me why. And the response was, you're lost, and it's not my job to find you. And I said, interesting, because I'm preaching on the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, and that's the sentiment of the Pharisees. You may be lost in your sin, but it's not my job to find you. Thank God Jesus thought it was his job to find lost sinners. And so spending time with the licentious prompts the grumbling from the legalists, both then and now. Sinners haven't changed. They still do this. Secondly, Jesus the shepherd seeks lost sheep, which is why we then have this parable that's about to be told. Jesus tells three parables uh, that explain what's going on here. Three parables that address his relationship both with sinners as well as his relationship with the Pharisees and the scribes. 
He's dealing with both of these groups of people. And he tells the story of a sheep. One of a hundred wanders off. Okay? Which one of you wouldn't leave the 99 to get the one? Now, let's pause for a sec. When we deal with parables, it's very tempting to try and find hidden meaning in everything in a parable. Don't do that. Okay. Focus on the main point of the parable. Okay. If you get the main point of the parable, you'll recognize that there are some points of it that are important, but don't look for all the minutiae for some hidden special meaning within this parable. Okay. So we see that uh, there's one that wanders off, that is lost. But let's recognize that sheep tend to wander away because they want food. They, they get busy on some grass and they keep chewing on the grass and they're not paying attention to all the rest of the sheep. And uh, they're going off that direction. But, you know, this, this is leading me down here. And, and they find that they... Yeah, look around. Where did everybody go? <laughs> yeah, that, that's sheep easily get lost. Okay. And we could say that the search for food is essentially the search for pleasure. Right? How do people get lost? Well, the sinners very likely were people who were people who were lost because they were seeking pleasure. Whether it was gourmet meals, and I hate to say that. Because I like really good food, and I like really good beer, and I like really good cigars. Um, I like pleasure. I like it when my Patriots win, and I. But I know that that day is going to come to an end real soon. Um, <laughs> okay. The tax collectors. Prosperity. Why were they doing this? Why were they putting up with the grief from everyone else? They wanted money. It was a good job. And so some people wander off because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, as it says in Timothy. Now, don't believe the trivial pursuit version of this, that the love of money is the root of all evil. Sorry, that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So some pursue prosperity or some pursue power or the perks and privileges that come with power. Okay? But people do wander. In pursuit of these things that become ultimate or most important for them. We see in places like Psalm 40, My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. Part of what is going on there in Psalm 40 is that sin blinds us so that we often can't see how messed up and lost we really are and we can't see a way home. This is clear when it comes to addicts, but it's still true for people with lesser sins. They can get lost so that they cannot come home. We see in Psalm 119, verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. 
for I do not forget your commandments. Here's someone who remembered God's commandments but still got lost. Hey, that's sort of like most of us at this room sometimes. But we need someone to come to seek us because we can't find the way back home. Now, as I noted, one one-hundredth or one out of one hundred of this person's wealth, this shepherd's wealth, wandered away. And the shepherd went looking for it. I remember <coughs> my last year as a volunteer in youth ministry in New England, right before I left to go to Florida in seminary, we went to a conference in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, the, the youth pastor would usually be kind of near the front of the group. And I wasn't told to do this. I just did it. But I would usually hang out at the back of the group and uh, keep my eye on everybody. I would count every few minutes, make sure everyone was there and accounted for. No one had wandered off, gotten lost, or anything like that. Because, you know, um, it wouldn't go well if we came back to the church and said, Hey, 80% of the kids came back. (laughs) 100%. We want all the kids coming back. So this shepherd wants all the sheep back in the fold. Now, the fact that he has a hundred indicates that he probably, it's a fairly big flock and this person probably has a fair amount of money and so there's usually an under-shepherd or two that's also there. And so it's not as though this person is abandoning the 99, but he is making sure that he gets the one. He goes and he finds him. Now, Jesus uses this sheep-shepherd imagery for a number of reasons, one of which is from what we saw in Ezekiel. He is the shepherd who is God himself who comes to seek the sheep that the shepherds of Israel have neglected. And at this point in time, there were no kings. And it was the basically he's saying, you Pharisees were supposed to be looking for the lost sheep of Israel, and you haven't been doing it. Because I am the Lord. But there's also another sense in which he's talking about, he uses this image of sheep and shepherd. And I think it's in part because shepherds in that culture were looked down upon. They were despised. And it's a reflection of the fact that the Pharisees despised Jesus. And so he uses a despised series of figures to reflect himself in the telling of these parables. And we'll get more to that next week. But the good shepherd is one who cares about all of his sheep, and he seeks the sheep that have been lost through sin. He doesn't just lament, in a, you know, oh, I'm so sorry that this sheep got lost. He goes and he finds it. Jesus seeks to restore the lost sheep to a relationship with himself and with the Father. And so we see that incredible passage where Jesus declares that I am the good shepherd, and it's not just that the sheep know his voice, but he dies for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep, because that is the price of their wandering, is his life. And he pays it for them, in their place, so that they can have life. And so we see this reflected in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners. To which Paul adds, of whom I am the worst. So you can't understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ apart from His mission to save sinners. Of whom you're the worst. And so am I. We have to see ourselves in that place. That He came to rescue us. Seeking the lost is not something that started with the ministry of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, but we see, in fact, it begins right there, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, aware that they're naked, hiding in the bushes because God is coming, and God beats the bushes looking for Adam and Eve that He might call them back to Himself. And while they forfeit the Garden of Eden, He offers them hope in the first preliminary mutterings of the gospel. So when Jesus is meeting and allowing these people to come and to, to have meals with Him, He is not affirming them in their sin. He is not condoning their sin because Jesus is going to die for their sin. He introduces this parable with this phrase, What man of you, having a hundred sheep? And so he's, he's getting them. If you were to lose a one one-hundredth of your wealth, you'd go find it, wouldn't you? And yet, why are you not looking for the lost sheep of Israel? Jesus puts them on the hook here, even if they might not recognize that Jesus is putting them on the hook. And so there's a sense here in which I see that if we're joined to Jesus ourselves by faith, we will join Jesus in seeking sinners where they are. We'll sort of be like the bartender, but not the bartender. Okay? You're all where sinners are. Right? You live next to them. You work next to them. Unless, of course, you work from home. Then, but then you interact with them somehow. Okay? You're where people are already. But do you see that you're there for the gospel? Or are you just there because you're there? And you've got no place else better to be. We see Jesus doing this in Matthew 10. The twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we remember that in Acts 1, he expands their mission beyond the lost sheep of Israel. They're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. This was just specific instructions for for a specific missionary journey to the lost sheep of Israel. But we see... Jesus didn't just come. He also sent His disciples amongst them. This is a reflection of the fact that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. But here's the thing. If you aren't joined to Jesus, like the Pharisees and scribes weren't, you won't seek sinners where they are. 
And so that's the problem of the attractional church. It's nice when, when sinners come in the door and they, they come and they hear the truth and they repent and believe. And, and that, that's a good thing. Um, but the implication is that we're really also supposed to be going out there to bring them in. Not just waiting for them and to come, but to bring them in. <clears throat> so, Jesus is at work doing this, but those who are not joined with him are not participating in this. Let me throw out, uh, sorry, my brain just did 180. Joined to Jesus, you won't affirm or participate in their sin. Remember I said that he died for their sin, he's not condoning their sin, he's not affirming their sin, and neither are you to do any of that. You're there to make Jesus known, not have a good time, or simply have a good time. And this is important because we don't want to be stained by the world and so there may be particular ministry or uh, contexts that where, where you don't belong. Okay, let's go back to the bartender. If he had a problem with alcohol, he shouldn't be there at the bar. Okay, um, you don't get drunk for Jesus. <laughs> okay, and, and explain it away by, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to reach the lost. Okay. Know your particular temptations and recognize that is not where you need to be to do ministry. I shouldn't drive by one of the gentlemen's clubs and see any of our elders or deacons or anyone hanging around outside because that is a place of temptation. Let the women go share the gospel in a place like that. You understand? So, I'm not saying just go willy-nilly, use wisdom, but go where sinners are. Just not the sinners that you kind of used to be <laughs> or have a, have a heart or, or a temptation to you. We see that Jesus sort of ends this parable with this idea of he finds the sheep he picks it up, tosses it on his shoulders, which is probably about 60 pounds. So, you know, throws it on his shoulder, carries it back because the lost sheep is presumably tired. What's really interesting is that there is a rabbinic tradition that before the burning bush, Moses lost a sheep. Moses searched for the sheep, found the sheep by a source of water, picked it up, tossed it on his shoulders, and brought it back. And so what I think Jesus is getting at here is, you Pharisees who are criticizing me are implicitly criticizing Moses. Because that was the basis in that rabbinical tra tradition, which was false, of course, but that was the basis for why God called Moses. That he was faithful in finding the one sheep, therefore he's going to go to the whole flock that was Israel. 
So Jesus is saying, you are, you're basically criticizing what that tradition said Moses did. But the greater Moses, <laughs> the greater shepherd, was present for the redemption of the sheep. And so Jesus, the greater Moses and shepherd, seeks lost sheep to return them to the fold. Thirdly, rejoicing is a godly response to repentance. You see, the shepherd isn't simply personally pleased. It does say he rejoiced. Okay? And when he gets back with the sheep, he's still rejoicing. And it's not enough for him to rejoice personally. He finds his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me! Have a party. I think is what he's saying. Have a party with me. And here's the punchline. The shepherd's joy reflects the joy in heaven over repentance, a joy which the Pharisees and the scribes were lacking. They were not happy that Jesus has found the lost sheep of Israel. They're grumbling because Jesus has found the lost sheep of Israel. They're anti-gospel. They're anti-Christ in their response. Their attitude reflects that which is an old Jewish saying that is quoted by Alfred Edersheim. There is joy before God when those who provoke Him perish from the world. That is not the joy Jesus is displaying. He's rejoicing. Not that they perish, but they found, they've been given life. And life everlasting. And so, so that the lost sheep uh, being found and being returned to God's field is made visible by the repentance. It's, it's kind of funny that he kind of makes that shift. Uh, you know, he talks about repentance. Wait a minute, there's, there's, there's nothing about this about repentance. It's just been a shepherd going and grabbing a sheep. Well, what does it look like for Jesus' sheep to be found? It looks like repentance. That's what it looks like. That's, that's what we see. Repentance. In Sunday school, I mentioned J.I. Packer's definition of repentance in his book on holiness. And I think that's very helpful for, for us. Turning away from however much we know of our sin and turning to however much we know of God. Okay, So turning away from our sin as much as we know it and turning to God as much as we know Him. And as we grow in Christ, our knowledge of our sin will increase. And so we're turning away from more and more of our sin because we go, we, we not only notice the biggie sins, but we know the smaller sins and the attitudinal sins. And so our understanding of our sin grows and therefore our repentance deepens. And so we're turning away from more and more of our sin, but also our understanding of who God is grows and we're turning to more and more of who God is. And so these two aspects of repentance will be evident in this person who has been reclaimed by Jesus. And so Jesus drops the big bomb on the Pharisees and the scribes. There will be more joy in heaven in over one sinner who repents than the 99 
righteous who don't need to repent. Doesn't mean there's 99. It just means when sinners repent, there's a whole lot of joy in heaven. Right? That's what it means. And part of what that means is, heaven is a happy, holy, noisy place. There's a whole lot of joy going on in heaven because there's a whole lot of sinners repenting. Is that how you think of heaven? This noisy, bustling, joy-filled explosion of happiness because sinners are coming. It's almost like that, I can't remember if it's a stupid Doritos commercial or whatever, uh, but the bell goes off whenever the bag gets sold, you know? Whenever a sinner gets saved, the, uh, some bell goes off. Yeah! More than a touchdown by your favorite team. More than... Holy happiness. Great rejoicing. Not restrained, not dignified, but holy. An amazing thing. And the meals that Jesus is having with these people aren't just reflecting the sacrificial law, but we see it's an anticipation of the prophecy in places like Isaiah 26. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He's talking about a serious party with really good food and really good wine because there's something really important to celebrate. The inbreaking of God in the gospel and the salvation of sinners to the glory of God. And so this indicates to me that God loves to fellowship with His people. God loves to feast with His people. I know I'm running a little late, but there's a great picture of this in the movie Babette's Feast. It's a little independent film that maybe if you didn't hear about it, it's uh, probably 10, 15 years old at this point. It takes place in a uh, dying religious community in Denmark. And uh, as it kind of, as you kind of see it over time, it's, it, sin is in building walls amongst the remaining members of this religious community. And they take in this French woman, Babette. And they don't really know who Babette is. And they teach her to prepare the gruel, basically, the, the broiled fish, not broiled, boiled fish that they serve to the widows in the community. Well, what happens is that Babette wins the French lottery. And she gets this money. And instead of going, yippee, I can buy myself a house, she decides to throw a feast for the people. And it turns out that Babette, in reality, used to be the owner and chef at a restaurant in Paris. And so she prepares an exquisite meal for these people with rich food and rich wine. And something amazing happens as these people gather at this table. Somehow in the midst of it all, in a way that's meant to reflect the gospel, 
all of those grudges fall. And people are restored. And the ones who couldn't even talk to each other before before are walking out arm in arm filled with joy and restoration and reconciliation. A picture of what Jesus accomplishes with the gospel. Now, there's a, there's a sense in which I, I don't understand this because how can the ever-blessed God become more blessed? How can the ever-happy God become more happy? And yet, that, that is the point of this whole parable, that God is happy and the angels are happy and Abraham and Moses are happy. Pharisees, get happy. So the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes reveals a profound misunderstanding of their calling as well as a profound misunderstanding of Jesus' calling and who Jesus was. As the good shepherd, Jesus went looking for the lost sheep of Israel. Something that they were supposed to be doing but weren't. And if we join Jesus, we're going to go looking for them. But if we join the Pharisees and scribes and their grumbling, we also misunderstand our calling because we're called to follow Jesus to where the sinners are. We're called to follow Him in making known His bleeding and dying on behalf of sinners like us and to bring them home. And so our hearts should rejoice, reflecting the joy of heaven and the repentance of sinners. But Jesus is not done with this theme, and neither am I, even though I'm pausing for a week. Let's pray. Father, grant us joy. Grant us joy in repentance. In our own repentance. Grant us joy in the repentance of others because we see that this means that Jesus has found lost people and Jesus has restored them to His flock. Help our joy to reflect the joy of heaven. Not cynicism like my heart is so prone toward. Help us to embrace this vocation that you've given us. Help us to find great joy in it. Because you do. And you are the measure of all things. Not we ourselves. So work by your powerful spirit to produce this in us. Because it doesn't come naturally, and we need you desperately. Just as we need, just as much as we needed Jesus to die for our sins, we need this. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.